0: This episode is brought to you by Audible. Get your free audiobook download by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. Welcome to the 300th episode of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Slate Magazine, The Onion Radio News, NPR, The Colbert Report, Counterspin, The New Yorker, The Daily Show, and The Young Turks.
1: Charlie, the New York Times reports that as Japan faces its worst recession in a generation, many companies in the country have been forced to lay off their most efficient workers. So who's getting fired? uh cats
2: no dogs mm. no
1: <laughs> robots yes robots oh. very good japan has the most oh. working robots of any country but as industrial production has plummeted there as other places so has the need for mechanized labor mm. all over japan unemployed hobo bots mm-hmm. are living in impromptu tent camps known mm. as circuit cities mm. Mm say, the robots are enjoying the break, they're not powering on till noon, using their daytime television sensors. Many robots are looking for work though. It's it's tough out there. Somewhere in a Tokyo high-rise, even as we speak, a boss is looking across the desk at a robot and saying,
3: I'm sorry, you aren't the droid we're looking for. (laughs) They keep kind of bumping against the
4: wall. I think. I, would, I
5: think it would be kind of scary to like call the robot into your office and tell him he's being mm-hmm. laid off. Yes. You know. I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand, Dave. <laughs>
6: Today's story is called The Lehman Shock, Why the Bank's Failure One Year Ago Was So Much More Devastating for the Rest of the World Than for the United States, and it's written by Daniel Gross. The failure of Lehman Brothers on September 15, 2008 was an epic calamity, but it may have been more important overseas, where September 2008 is referred to as Lehman Shock, than it was here. In the United States, the sudden bankruptcy of America's fourth-largest investment bank was the cathartic culmination of a process that had been building since subprime lenders began to go bust in 2007. Before Lehman was allowed to fail, we had witnessed the shocking demise of well-known firms such as Bear Stearns and of much larger institutions, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the two largest U.S. financial institutions as measured by the size of their balance sheets, and AIG. Throughout the summer of 2008, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson and the Federal Reserve had been dealing with systemic failure. Yes, Lehman's demise kicked the level of hysteria up several notches and required unprecedented intervention, particularly in the commercial paper market. But it wasn't a solitary event. The same day Lehman failed, Bank of America and Merrill Lynch, a larger firm than Lehman, merged. The same week, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley converted to bank holding companies so they could access new sources of credit. Meanwhile, the Bush administration began to concoct a large-scale bailout, and a hot presidential election took a decisive turn. Our attention quickly shifted from the dead to the living and wounded. But for the rest of the world, Lehman's failure stands out, in part because it marked a beginning rather than an end and in part because Lehman's failure triggered a series of events that affected economies around the world to a much greater degree than the other failures did. It seemed to be the direct cause of serious problems in a way that these other events weren't. Lehman had issued hundreds of billions of dollars in short-term debt, including commercial paper. Commercial paper is usually a boring and unsexy market, but it's a vital cog in the global economic engine. Companies need access to lots of short-term credit—30 days, 90 days, 180 days—to finance production and shipment of goods. Without it, they're toast. When Lehman filed for Chapter 11, it rendered a lot of its commercial paper worthless, or worth a lot less, and caused a panic among the investors and funds that owned it. For all intents and purposes, the commercial paper market seized up, If Lehman couldn't make good on its short-term debt, was it safe to lend money to anybody? Banks and financial institutions around the world lost trust in one another, causing short-term lending rates to spike. Since short-term credit is both the lubricant and fuel of global trade, the effect of the Lehman failure was a little like sucking the engine oil and gas out of a race car going 180 miles per hour. The whole machine stalled. All of a sudden, the world seemed to change. Yes, the United States had been in recession since the beginning of 2008, but world trade had held up quite well. But after the Lehman shock, all world trade began to shrink rapidly. Starting in September 2008, the volume of world trade began to plummet sharply. As the World Trade Organization reported in March, the months since last September have seen precipitous drops in global production and trade, first in developed economies, then in developing ones as well. In late 2008, world trade was contracting at a 40% annual rate. In Japan, exports, which had held up well in 2008, fell 57% between August 2008 and January 2009. Through the first half of 2009, they were down nearly 40% from the first half of 2008. In Germany, exports in July 2009 were 25% below the level of July 2008. China's exports have fallen too, although less dramatically. This sharp contraction in exports was as much of a shock to these countries' systems as the sharp fall in housing was to the United States. The United States had built an economy that was highly dependent on housing, leverage, and easy credit, and that was unable to weather stress in any of those sectors. Japan, Germany, and many other countries, by the same token, had built economies that were highly dependent on credit-fueled trade. For other economies, the layman's shock meant the sudden recognition that what for years had been a source of jobs and growth was no longer reliable. It's not just that exports to the United States shriveled after September 2008. The flow of goods everywhere, in all directions, has fallen. The real layman's shock was that the contracting U.S. economy and the failed U.S. financial system could drag the global economy into its first recession since World War II. On the first anniversary of the Lehman collapse, the question is whether the recovering United States can lead the whole world back to growth.
7: Campaign is drained from a business community pool marking the end of summer. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Summer came to its official end today as area businessmen looked on sadly while solid gold pumps drain champagne from their luxury pool. For CEO Philip Bolton, the event is a bittersweet time of year, especially after having to settle for subpar champagne due to the current economic slowdown.
8: While very good and full-bodied, uh, what our pool was filled with was sparkling wine true champagne is from the Champagne region of France.
7: Bolton ruefully added that if things don't pick up soon, the business community will have no choice but to fill its hot tub with domestic brands of water. Doyle Redlin for The Onion Radio News.
1: time last year, it was a dark day on Wall Street. The storied investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed, setting off a chain of events that plunged the global economy into crisis. Congress will soon hold lots of hearings to study those events, to learn from them, and to find ways to prevent a future crisis. The former Colorado Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell has spent a lot of time at hearings like those, and he points out one flaw they all share. Oh, God, it's boring. Yeah, that's right. I think it was the most boring thing I ever did. To say nothing, I didn't understand some of that stuff.
9: Well, we are here to help. NPR's Planet Money team and the Pew Charitable Trusts conducted an experiment. We wanted to see if we could hold a hearing that was not boring and not so hard to understand. Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg hosted a panel of leading experts at Pew's offices here in Washington to discuss how to rewrite the rules of American finance. They met before a live
10: audience. When I report on complicated issues like financial market reform, I want to make sure the stories make sense to the average person, the non-expert, someone like my dad. So at the Pew event, Alex made a special introduction. I would like to introduce Adam's dad, Jack Davidson. (laughs) All right. So dad, I'm giving my dad this bell. Dad, ring the bell. Right. When any of the panelists or the presenters say something that's completely confusing, just ring the bell, and that's a message that you guys have to translate what you're saying to plain English. With the bell handy
11: to stop any confusion, it was time to bring up the experts. The goal for the night was to see if it's possible to find consensus. Are there financial reforms that Democrats and Republicans, bankers and consumers, can all agree on? Or will the process be endlessly locked in a battle between different
12: interests?
10: First up was Adam Levitin, a Georgetown law professor with a decidedly consumer-focused approach. He said that a major cause of the financial crisis last year was the fact that there are so many different financial regulators in the U.S. that financial firms could play one against the other. Like take the case of disgraced
12: mortgage firm and bank, Countrywide Financial. Countrywide had been a national bank, and they didn't like the regulation they were getting from the OCC. So they went to the Office of Thrift Co- Supervision, which was re- another bank regulator, and they said, what can you offer us if we uh, switch our charter and you know, bring our business to you? Well, Office of Thrift Supervision said, we'll let you choose your own appraisers. And, once in, and when that opened the door to all kinds of mischief at Countrywide.
10: <laughs> <laughs> people. people bank they can shop for who regulates them yes that's what's amazing about this no they
13: cannot that's diane casey
11: landry with the american bankers association the largest bank trade group in washington she was another expert speaking at this event. One note for Adam's dad and the rest of us. When bank experts refer to shopping a charter, they mean the process by which banks switch from one regulatory no, agency they, to
12: another. They, they can, no. they do, and this, and is, they, they this is a core part not. of bank- If you were to take they a banking ask- regulation class at any law school in the United States, the main topic would be who regulates the institution and how does the institution find the best regulator for it. But
13: the reality is, is that you're talking about it from a classroom. You might as well get out there and be an examiner and realize that people do not shop their charters. <laughs>
12: don't shop their charters just look at colonial which failed recently they were moving their charter all over the place we as have soon as 80, the regulators got wise banks to them
13: in this country 96% of which are well capitalized and are well run institutions we have a fraction of which today are problematic and the reality is you don't regulate and set new regulations for an entire government bureaucracy because of several institutions that have failed and even if we get a couple hundred the reality is we still have a well banked system
12: and the system hasn't worked and it's hurt a lot of people So Levitin,
10: the consumer advocate, says the crisis revealed fundamental flaws in our regulatory system. For Casey Landry, the system is sound. It just needs a few tweaks. But Levitin said that doesn't mean they have to be enemies all the
12: time. I think we can agree that there needs to be a uniform regulatory umbrella for all types of institutions offering financial products. Banks should not be playing with a different set of rules than non-banks. That the mortgage brokers should be regulated just like banks. Is that? I agree agree with that. Oh,
13: well. <laughs> but that's about all I agree with. But I agree with that.
10: My goodness, Alex, we've got a minor miracle a tiny shred of agreement between a consumer advocate and a bank advocate. This brief moment of agreement did not last. Later in the evening, things
11: took a turn for the partisan. Michael Barr is Assistant Secretary for the Treasury, obviously a Democrat. Peter Wallison, now with the American Enterprise Institute, worked for President Reagan's Treasury Department. Barr said the Obama administration is proposing strict rules on financial
10: firms that
11: are systemically important, the ones that, if they fail, could bring down the entire economy.
10: Republican Peter Wallison is skeptical. Let me ask you this, then, just a simple question, and that is, How can you tell the difference between a company that, when it fails, will simply cause disruption in the economy and one that, when it fails, will cause what we're supposed to be protecting against, and that is systemic risk?
14: I think, Peter, precisely because that question is so hard, you want to build your system so it's more resilient to failure. We need to have a financial system with bigger buffers in the event of failure, our largest, most complicated firms need to have more capital requirements. They need to have better risk assessments. That's got to be bigger buffers. Have to be built in the system, precisely because you don't want to be left uh, in a situation so in which you don't, the you government in the end is trying to make those. You don't, first of all, you don't. Know I'm which not smart enough to know which about. ones those are. Right. Exactly. But which someone ones are, No, which ones are going to fail? You, I know which ones in advance. You I want to have, have to, bigger buffers, you're going to have to bigger capital requirements in, in advance. You get the you idea know, here.
11: This goes on for a little bit. And then Martin I I Bailey an of the Brookings Institution question question is, jumps you know, into I the frame. The regulators didn't do their job. Under your system, why are they going to do their job? Are they going to have more expertise? Are they going to be paid better? I, I what, think what is it in your system that makes sure that next time the regulators do their job? There were rooms full of regulators in these
14: banks that went under. You need to build in bigger buffers because we're not going to always get it right. I think you need to have a system that is uh, humble, that is able to understand that regulators are going to make mistakes, that financial institutions are going to go too far, they're going to make mistakes, and there are going to be failures, you need to have a system that's more resilient to them.
11: Adam, you and I started the evening wondering if we could find some basic ideas that pretty much everyone agrees on, a basis for a new, stronger financial system.
10: And by the end of the evening, the answer was clear not yet I,
15: walk alone, I walk alone.
0: Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have the heavy hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama. But my personal favorites are like Lies and the lying Liars to Tell them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, And America, the audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best.
15: My guest
5: tonight economist, and a New York Times columnist. I'll ask him which of his jobs makes me angrier. Please welcome Paul Krugman! Paul, thanks so much for coming back. Good to see you. Good to see you. Well, you have a well-timed book here, sir. It's called the return of depression economics, and the crisis of 2008. I must say, this crisis has been awful good to Paul Krugman. <laughs> you got a book. Nobody was doling out the Nobel prizes for you before everything went in the crapper, were they? Uh, well, I guess that's true, but uh, conflict of interest.
2: It is a real problem. Yes, I, I'm, I'm doing all my best to make this worse. No, um, no. This is it. this is a uh, this is. Look, I'd rather. I'd rather not have been right about some of these things.
5: Really? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is really bad. This is really really okay, bad. Okay, now listen, I'm conflicted about you because while I don't respect what you do or say, I do <laughs> I do appreciate you that you bring the brick bat to Barack Obama here, okay? Give me some weapons. Give me something I can say about him. Where did he drop the ball? Because he totally has dropped the ball in the stimulus package, right? Totally uh, dropped it. No, no, the, the stimulus package is actually, you know, it's making things less
2: bad than they would have been it's actually you know you want to be clear about this it really is helping jobless the, recovery uh yeah but it would have been a, you know we we were really on the edge possibly of a second great depression this, was re- this is really, really bad. I mean, this is the worst thing I... This it's is a failure. It's a complete failure. No, it's actually... Less like- than
5: 10% of the money has been spent, oh, right? Okay. That was expected. Okay. That was expected. And and therefore, less than 10% of it is in place, and therefore, it is all a failure. No. <laughs> right. Um, no, no, it's like, if I get a prescription, if I have a fever and I get penicillin and the first pill doesn't cure me, I'm going back to the leeches. That's right. I'm
2: not going to waste my time. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> This thing is, this, the stimulus is a help, but well, I will say, look, the big problem is, we all came into this, and this includes people in the administration as well, saying this is, a, this is the crisis of our lives, the crisis of, of several generations. you got to hit it with overwhelming force. You've got to take a you know, massive dose of antibiotics to cure this thing. And what they actually gave was enough to help, but not enough to cure it and there were reasons for that and you know this is not it's not easy they didn't have uh, a clear 60 senators to vote for stimulus and all of that but still the fact of the matter is that the the solution has not been up in scale to the size of the problem and that's that's the thing that's got me worried Goldman Sachs
5: Boy, reported great great profits today well, stock market responded well everything's everything's better then you know the stock market, everything's totally bad or totally better you have to pick a side
2: no things are getting worse more slowly Excuse me. Th- things are getting worse more slowly. We were losing, you know, we we're losing 700,000 jobs a month. We're probably at this point going to be losing around 300,000
5: jobs a month. Can you say so anything-, anything cheerful? Can you say anything um, cheerful at all? Let's come on. I think I just did, didn't I? Things are getting worse, worse more slowly. Lot more slowly? Really? Um, well, you know, You're will- dying, but you'll linger. Yeah.
2: Um, this will.
5: It's painful, but it'll last.
2: Well- let me say something positive. We do actually have people in the White House who understand the stuff. Are, I, I think they're not forceful enough, but these are not stupid people. These You're are not crazy people. they understand people. what they did wrong, then? Uh, they understand what the problems of the economy are. You know, this is, uh, as I say, they're not stupid, they're not crazy, which is a big improvement on previous management.
5: <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> No, I agree. I agree. A lot of this can be put at the doorstep of the Clinton administration. True. I think it's Jimmy Carter's fault. But, yeah, okay. I'm with with you there. But this
2: is is really, this is really, uh, you know, the, the, the feeling I have and the... The feeling that 's backed by a lot of numbers unfortunately is that we have this enormous crisis and mm-hmm. we 've been just in general we 've been ameliorating we 've been doing stuff that limits I don't The, know the stimulus will means, help right i well, 'm not sure either, right, right. but you know we, so the stimulus is going to probably you know lead to three three and a half million more jobs than we would otherwise have had but we 're already about eight million jobs in the whole relative to where we should be so it 's all of this stuff is falling short all right you know we can hope maybe stuff will turn up maybe there 'll be another stimulus package Uh, you know there'll be more stuff so we we can just but but so far so far the great fear great depression too hasn't happened but the recovery is nowhere in
5: sight how many employees do you paul krugman have um i
2: have
7: have, you ever created
5: one job um i have have, you ever run one business no so much as a hot dog stand no in fact i have not so you're a theoretician this is true so you are like a theologian okay a theologian right can write about martyrdom, but only the martyr goes into the fire. Okay? True? Yeah, that's... Okay? So shouldn't we let the free market and business cure these things? Because they've created jobs. Uh, you know, business got us into this, right? I and mean, they can get us got... out. They know the way. Right. Well, they're... They go, they're... Up, back up that slippery slope. That's where we came down. There, There is a line,
2: actually, that some of us use, that, you know, we do, you do need people who know where the bodies are buried, and maybe the best people are the people who put the bodies there. Uh, but, uh...
5: But I think not quite in this case. <laughs> That's the cheeriest thing you've said so far. There we are. Paul Groupman thank, thank you thank so you much, much for joining us. <laughs> the book fun. is The Return
15: of Depression Economics. Bury me with my car. Because if anywhere is wherever I am.
16: stands at 9.7% according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics or BLS, but that figure, referred to as U3, only includes the unemployed who have actively sought employment in the previous month. It doesn't include discouraged workers, other long-term unemployed, and the underemployed. For a more complete unemployment picture, you have to refer to the BLS's U6 measure, which is also regularly reported but seldom mentioned by media. The U6 currently shows an unemployment rate of about 16%. So kudos to the New York Times for a front-page September 7th report in which reporter Michael Luo explains how millions of workers are left out of employment reporting. Too bad Luo failed to note the existence of the U6 number and its current rate of 16%. But the U6 figure can be abused, which brings us to Sean Hannity, who told Fox viewers on August 27th, quote, don't believe the hype. The Fed says the real unemployment rate is 16%. Hannity added, This is the recovery the Obama administration wants our gratitude for? Both the U3 and U6 figures are legitimate measures, and while we would prefer the more inclusive U6 be used, Hannity is deceptively switching standards to suggest the Obama administration is lying by citing a measure that administrations have cited for decades. But this is Sean Hannity, so it's fair to ask if he even understands the difference between the two numbers, or if he does, and he is purposely confusing the numbers for political purposes. In other words, it's a question of whether Hannity is incompetent or corrupt. Well, the answer to that seems fairly obvious, though, if you simply ask if, given the choice, Hannity would use the higher unemployment figure during a Republican administration.
15: Tell me lies, tell me sweet little-
9: On Monday, the anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, President Obama argued for financial reform in a speech on Wall Street.
4: We will not go back to the days of reckless behavior and unchecked excess that was at the heart of this crisis, where too many were motivated only by the appetite for quick kills and bloated bonuses.
9: Jim, do you find it as surprising as I do how quickly the sense of urgency has passed?
3: Yeah, it's astonishing to me. I mean, exactly one year ago today, you know, we really were uh, staring into the abyss. And those aren't my words exactly. I think Paulson used that phrase. Bernanke may have used the phrase. And they weren't exaggerating. We really were. We were looking at the possibility of of a global bank run that would have brought the world economy to a screeching halt. It, you know, the, okay, the stock market is up. It's amazing how people are willing to sort of like look at their 401k plans and they're up a little bit and say, well, everything must be fine so let's uh, let's move on.
9: Well, in the audience at Wall Street for Obama's speech they did not seem to be fully, fully chastised or on board.
3: Well, not in the least. And, 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 you, and you really stop and think, why would they? I mean, I'm a little, frankly, puzzled by those comments of Obama because he's saying, you're not too big to fail. Well, if there's one lesson that we know from the week a year ago, we know that some things are too big to fail. Letting Lehman go under was an absolute disaster, and nothing in the regulatory framework has changed. If anything, people are more convinced that if they behave recklessly, they're going to be bailed out than they were a year ago. The idea of moral hazard, where you have to bear the risk of your actions, has, has almost never been at a lower ebb.
9: John, do you agree?
17: Well, I think Jim's exactly right. We now have a system whereby the big firms like Citigroup, Bank of America, are not going to allow it to be collapsed under any circumstances. People on Wall Street know that, so they have an incentive to take more risk, knowing that the state is there as a fallback option. The president can't ignore that. I mean, part of his speech was good. He said as a prid quo quo for the uh, government um, support, there has to be more regulation. That's correct, but he was undermining his own case to some extent by saying that these firms are not too big to fail. Of course they're too big to fail. That's why they need regulating. Let's look at Goldman Sachs as an example. Immediately after the crisis uh, ended, they they almost went bankrupt, as Jim reports. They were the sort of next shoe to drop after Morgan Stanley. They they were facing a run from their hedge fund clients and they they couldn't raise money in the repo markets, etc. They got bailed out. They converted themselves into a bank. They effectively got government guaranteed. Now, what do they do the next quarter? They go out and massively increase the risks they're taking. If you look at the value at risk that they're running, it's actually gone up. And um, they make record, record profits. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because they realize that, you know, there's no real downside to them. If things go wrong, the government's going to come in and, um, and, and rescue them. That is moral hazard, you know, writ large. The fact that there isn't the political will there, you know, is, is pretty much, again, astonishing to me. Yeah,
3: and can I just add that on this regulatory framework, I'm, you know, they're sitting there kind of looking dour, but you know, behind the scenes, they're absolutely gleeful. When you talk about regulation, the one thing that is absolutely not being regulated is their pay. Now, what is the number one source of anger on Main Street about the whole bailout thing? I think it's these unbelievably massive bonuses. The the Obama administration actually put out some months ago a number of, you know, fairly uh, sophisticated proposals for putting a cap on Wall Street pay. Now, I'm not talking about undermining pay performance. People still could have made money, but it would have required there be some performance to justify the bonuses. And that those proposals have been absolutely eviscerated. What's on the table right now is an incredibly flimsy suggestion that, oh, there should be more shareholder oversight of these bonuses. It amounts to nothing. It is a terrible failure, I think, of taking advantage of a great opportunity to go at what is one of the most significant problems uh, and the sources of anger about Wall Street.
9: The executive pay thing seems like a no-brainer, politically at least. I mean, just, it, just a total winner for the for the administration. I mean, if
3: all you did was say, we're going we're to ban guaranteed bonuses, yeah. which is such a small thing, doesn't take away any incentives... I think it would resonate hugely, at least it would be a concrete step, and you could point out the outrageous things that it would prevent and but they won't do it
9: Ryan isn't Jim right that it just seems exceedingly unlikely that that congress uh you know given the power of the Wall Street lobby and everything else, is going to you know allow anything remotely um
1: strong through well, it seems like on executive compensation that one seems like it's as as he said is getting uh, eviscerated but you know, Barney Frank in the in the House and and, and uh, is is being pretty aggressive on this and is holding hearings and is moving forward. And there seems to be consensus on, on on some of the things that need to be done. It Seems like to me the most important thing is what they do about the too big to fail issue. I mean, because right now there, there is nothing to do if an institution that's too big to fail uh, dies. You would have to do another bailout.
9: John, is that right?
17: I, I do agree that, you know, what to do about these big companies is a central issue. And I think a lot of it, you know, depends on what happens with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve does offer a way out of this in one way, in that it's not subject to congressional oversight. So the Fed can do things without getting Republicans on Capitol Hill to agree. The question is whether the Fed's the right institution to be looking at things like executive pay and winding up big firms or whether and overseeing uh, the mortgage industry, for example, or whether it isn't. The Obama administration, largely because they have a lot of respect, Guyton has a lot of respect for Bernanke and the role he played during his crisis, really is placing all its eggs in the basket of the Fed, I think. and. Um You know, it does raise big questions about whether the Fed's accountable enough, but there is this political advantage in that the Fed can act. The Fed can go to the top Wall Street firms and say, look, guys, you've got to reform your pay structures. We're your regulator. We're telling you to do it. They do have that power. The question is whether they'll be willing to use it or not.
9: Well, the Fed's lack of of oversight helped to create this crisis. How likely is it that they've learned the lesson?
17: It's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating time, because if you, if you sort of put a bit of historical perspective on it, we had the stock market bubble, that burst. The Fed slashed interest rates and effectively replaced the, house, the um, stock market bubble with a housing bubble. Now we've, had an, then we, now we've had another bust, a much bigger bust than we had in 2001, 2002. The Fed has slashed rates to zero, basically, which means banks and other investors can lend money at zero cost and invest it in whatever they want. That's fed through to an enormous asset price boom. The stock market's up 50 50% in the last six months had its best year since 1933. Prices of all sorts of other commodities like gold and oil are going up. There's basically an enormous amount of cheap liquidity sloshing around. That is an essential precondition for another bubble starting. So people in the markets are starting to say, "My goodness, you know, this is going to be the third bubble in 10 years." But at the same time, the Fed is terrified that you know the broader economy there's there's not a bubble in you know out in the Midwest or in the rest of the country. The bubble's on Wall Street.
9: John, I want you to respond to a, a point that Jim makes at the end of his piece, which is, uh, and made pretty strongly, that the Lehman failure may mark a victory of the of government interventionists over laissez-faire capitalists. And yet you both have sounded uh, pretty skeptical about the reality when uh, when, when we approach regulatory reform, reforms.
17: I think Jim is exactly right. I mean, I think the historical importance of the Lehman Brothers collapse and the enormous government intervention, not just in the U.S., but around the world, which the IMF uh, estimates cost $10 trillion, that's, you know, a lot of money by anybody's standards, I think we're effectively seeing the end of the sort of Reagan-Thatcher era of sort of unquestioning deregulation. The sort of you know, big unanswered question is, what's going to replace that? We're not going to go back to a sort of 1950s, 1960s style, very tight control, clearly in the US anyway, Glass-Steagall's not coming back. So you know, we just don't know what's, what's going to replace it. I think
3: there's a big gulf here, though, um, and we need. We, I guess it fall, falls on education to do something about it, because I, I think I saw a poll of 40 economists, and all 40 agreed that the failure of Lehman was a disaster and that essentially you need a government intervention when markets fail. But then you get this like march on Washington, this populist march of people, you know, waving banners saying, you know, nothing's too big to fail. You get Richard Shelby out there saying, you know, let the markets work. You know, and by the way, the, the free market might work, you know, over the next hundred years. We'd go back to the Iron Age for a while and then, you know, eventually, yeah, things would rekindle. But that's a ridiculously high price to pay. And yet we still have this huge gulf in this country. You know, you leave New York and Washington and the universities and you get out there on Main Street and there are all these people rampaging at the idea that we don't want any government bailouts. And I've even said to some, them, I said, well, do you want to just see the whole economy implode so that you can satisfy yourself and get some revenge on Wall Street bankers? And they say yes. So right. we, we still have a gap there. Yeah, To me, this is
1: sort of the central storyline of the Obama administration so far. And they're they're sort of scratching their heads over there saying, we feel like we just saved the economy, as Larry Summers like to, likes to say. We brought it back from the abyss and sort of they haven't really gotten any credit. Instead, it's produced this massive backlash about government intervention that has immediately led to the trouble they're having with uh, with health care and cap and trade and anything else that uh, conservatives can argue is just more big government. And it's it's sort of redefined who Obama is ideologically. And uh, you know, I think they feel that the, the the early bailouts that frankly they they did inherit are threatening to sort of overwhelm everything that Obama uh, originally ran on to accomplish.
17: Isn't it a failure of political rhetoric? I mean, surely, as Jim says, you know, there's this enormous anti-Wall Street feeling out there on, on the streets. Surely, you know, a president as gifted or, t- or as, as Obama can turn that in his favor. I mean, it seems to me that if the Obama administration adopted a more confrontational attitude to Wall Street and said, look, we bailed you guys out. Now you're going to have to do this. You know, we're defending the taxpayers' interests here. You know, that would resonate in the country. Unfortunately, you know, they, they, it's seen as a sort of backroom deal whereby the, the Obama administration and the Bush administration bailed out their chums on Wall Street. And now, you know, the rest of the, the taxpayers are going to pay.
9: Well, that's a great point. Ryan, why why isn't he doing that
1: tension all year long between Obama's political advisors and basically the Treasury Department with the Treasury Department saying we're in the middle of a war we're applying battlefield medicine here and we have to save the economy first we can beat up on the banks later you know now seems to be the time to maybe start beating up on the banks and we saw it a little bit in that speech the other day Um, but the, the view from the Treasury Department has all year has been anti-populist. don't just beat up on these guys to save the economy first..
15: Could never love.
18: marking a full year since the first ace fell in the collapse of our economic house of cards, the fall of the company Lehman Brothers, a.k.a. the moment we all realized we'd mailed our retirement money to a Nigerian prince. Anyway, so on Monday, President Obama used the occasion to head to a humbled Wall Street to let them know how the rules of the road had changed over the years.
4: We're proposing the most ambitious overhaul of the financial regulatory system since the Great Depression.
18: That's what? Proposing? Gerund? Proposing? Haven't done it yet? (laughs) Shouldn't we be talking to them in in the past tense?
4: We've got to close the loopholes that were at the heart of the crisis.
18: Again, close? (laughs) We're going to close loopholes? We gave them $700 billion before we close the loopholes? (laughs) It's like paying your contractor in full up front and going, you know, I trust you, you got your own van. (laughs) With what appears to be a fictitious address in Queens stenciled on the door. (laughs) Who do I make the check out (laughs) to? Really, and sons, I didn't know you were a fox. Get tough, Brother Obama, lay down the law. And keep in mind, these people are bankers.
4: hardcore those on wall street cannot resume taking risks without regard for consequences and expect that next time american taxpayers will be there to break their fall
18: because we're broke now (laughs) oh and 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 wait Uh, uh, why 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 was that again how did we run out of money oh right (laughs) But even Obama's soft-pedaled, altogether-now approach to reform was too much for the street. To me, that's just, broad, you know, painting with a
8: very broad brush. If you gave me 10 or 15 minutes, I could probably give you the 25 or 30 names that are basically, can account for 95% of the mess we're in.
18: Wait, 25 guys brought the world economy to its knees and that's why we don't need reform? Yeah, I mean 19 guys flew planes into buildings and suddenly everybody's gotta walk through a metal detector. <laughs> this is bullshit
15: when you
13: that corporate media use deficits as boogeymen because they just don't like social spending. Things like housing and transportation and health care just don't excite elite journalists in the way that, say, tax cuts do, or even other sorts of spending, say, on invasion and war. But as the saying goes, these outlets may be entitled to their own opinions, but not to their own facts. The Washington Post breaks that rule with their August 26th page one piece headlined deficit projected to soar with new programs and helpfully subheadlined. Ten-year estimate of $9 trillion fuels critics of president's agenda. The problem, as economist Dean Baker pointed out in his Beat the Press blog, is that the main cause of the increase in the deficit in the latest projections is not new programs. The main cause of the increase is worse-than-expected unemployment and growth numbers. Says Baker, a more neutral account of the projections would have highlighted the fact that the Congressional Budget Office now expects the unemployment rate to average 10.2 percent in 2010, while it previously had projected that unemployment would average just 9 percent. But readers won't find that information until deep into the Post's piece, Past the Jump. The Post also claims that deficits of the size projected, quote, would require dramatically more government borrowing from China and other creditors, close quote. But Baker reminds us that it's the trade deficit that requires borrowing from China, not the budget deficit. Whatever one thinks of U.S. economic policy, such fudging of facts just shouldn't pass muster for a newspaper, even if this piece had been on the editorial page where it belonged.
7: coach calls his star athlete too big to fail. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. DePaul University football coach Doug Turkowski described starting forward Russell Brody today as too valuable to the school to receive a less-than-passing grade and requested $3.4 million in federal funding to secure his place on the team. According to Turkowski, an academic suspension for Brody would be a terrible economic blow to everyone from broadcasters to concessionaires. This money is going to provide
1: employment for tutors. It's going to give jobs to the kids who steal and for him it's a win-win situation for the whole community
7: three years ago Brody was suspended from his high school team for failing geometry forcing his alma mater to be gutted and sold for scrap to Mexico
8: Bush's first term in 01 and in 03 he passed enormous tax cuts for the wealthy okay and also for uh, other tax brackets but they wound up helping the wealthy the most okay now they cost over a trillion dollars and that put an enormous hit on our budget and uh, and increase our deficit tremendously now there were no tea baggers or 912 twelveers protesting at that time talking about how the dollars going to get weak and the country's in a lot of trouble and the deficits are out of control I don't remember a single one of them protesting I know because they didn't, right? And when we protested Bush, they said, oh yeah, these crackpots. Just bow your head. He's the president. Of course he gives tax cuts to the wealthy. Well, all right. Now their main argument was it's okay, because that's going to actually bring in more money and raise all of our incomes. Trickle down economics. It's going to work. We're all going to make more money. Okay. So let's find out if that's how it turned out. The census numbers are in. Now this is Census final report card on these years. These are facts. I know that I was about to say you can't argue with facts, but of course that's what Republicans do on a daily basis. But this is not conjecture. The Census Bureau compiled these statistics. Okay. So what are they? Well, uh, when Bill Clinton left office in 2000, uh, the median income for American families was $52,500, measured for inflation in 2008 dollars. When Bush left office. It was $50,303. The median income in America over those eight years fell 4.2%. The rich got richer. We did a story on it at the end of last week. The highest 1%, their rate of increase for their income was dramatic. It was 10 times higher than it is for the bottom 90%. That means 90% of us, almost all of us, right? But overall, for the American families, down 4.2%. First president in U.S. history, as long as they've had recorded numbers, that has gone two terms, and the that has gone two terms, and the numbers, the median income for American families has gone down and not up. All right. If you want more uh, specifics, here we go. Get a load of this. Under Clinton, the median income increased 14 percent. Under Bush, it declined 4.2 percent. In the eight years of Clinton, it went up 14 percent. Uh, Under Clinton, the total number of Americans in poverty declined 16.97%. So poverty going down by 17%. Let's see what happened under Bush. Well, it increased 26.1%. Poverty going up over a quarter. Over 26% increase. Under Clinton, the number of children in poverty declined 24.2%. Under Bush, it increased by 21.4%. Under Clinton, the number of Americans without health insurance remained essentially even, down six tenths of one percent. Under Bush, it increased, meaning the number of people that have insurance de- uh, that do not have insurance declined. So it actually went up a little bit. Number of people who have insurance, but it was so small, you just call it about even for Clinton. Don't even give him credit for that. Okay, let's go out of our way to be fair. Under Bush, uh, well, that number uh, increased. And the number of uninsured increased. By 20.6 percent, so the number of uninsured increase, children in poverty increase, poverty increases all dramatically, and median incomes fall. So did those giant tax cuts wind up helping you? No, definitively, positively, not even close. No. Now, is this the first time it's ever happened? No. You know who else tried it? George Bush, the first George H. W. Bush. And what happened to median incomes under uh, George H. W. Bush? Hey, you look at that. They also declined. They declined, declined 3.2%. But I'm sure it's a wild coincidence that when you have the Republicans in office, your median income falls, and when you have Democrats in office, it rises. Okay? Now, these are not, we have not gone through 200 or 2,000 years of history on Democrats and Republicans. It's not the end-all, be-all. But. They're pretty tough numbers, man. And if you're going to argue that it's purely coincidence, that's a hell of an argument to make. All right, now finally, let's go to Reagan, right? Um, because uh, to be fair, under Reagan, the median income did rise. Now, that's eight years. It did rise, right? It uh, uh, rose 8.1%, not bad, okay? So you can say, and he's the one that started the tax cuts. Now, here's a couple of differences. One, when he started the tax cuts, uh, the highest marginal tax rate—it seems unbelievable today—but it was 70%. Now, when you raise it from 36 to 39, the wealthy lose their heads over. Like, How dare you, you communist, Marxist! Back then, it was 70%, right? So now, when he lowers that, yes, median income rate uh, did rise. Did it help everybody though? Did it help the lower classes? Well, let's find out. Overall, and childhood poverty were higher when Reagan rode off into the sunset than when he arrived. Uh this is from the Atlantic, by the way, if you want to read it. Mark Ambender wrote it. And it, in, so the number of poor Americans increased from 29.3 million to thirty-one point seven million in those five eight years. That's an increase of eight point four percent. So under any and all circumstances, since nineteen eighty, when you have Republican presidents, poverty always rises. Okay? Since nineteen eighty, and the median income rose for Reagan. Rose substantially for Clinton and declined significantly for the two Bushes. Now, look, you can even say it's a mixed record because medium income rose under eight. Okay. But really, you're gonna make the argument that these giant tax cuts, which destroy our deficit and our budget, really help all Americans? You can't make a positive case for that. You just can't. Now that's if you care about numbers and you believe in facts and reality. If you believe that reality has a well-known liberal bias, I guess you come up with different results. So that's what I'm talking about when I say sometimes it's big money or the rich versus the rest of us. Because under Bush, the rich did much better, and the rest of us did worse. Now, if you want to keep going with those policies, you keep electing Republicans. Unfortunately, you don't have a lot of choices because a lot of corporatist Democrats agree with this nonsense, too
15: i gonna help me get up. i gonna help, help me stop. stop. I'm gonna help me talk right. I'm gonna lay me down. One gonna hold my bones One gonna keep me warm And another gonna keep me cold One gonna bring the legend Right from the cold man's stone One gonna help me keep And another gonna help me take One
18: gonna run me down hell of bullets in my way Meanwhile while things continue to deteriorate in Afghanistan soul. The rest of the world is singing a different tune.
10: Germany's coming out of recession. Japan is coming out of recession. France, Canada uh, is coming out of recession.
18: Germany, Japan, France, Canada. Green shoots popping up all over the world. Good news for everyone.
10: The United States is mired in it.
18: Except us. (laughs) All right, we're still a little mired in it, but we're working our way out. Yeah?
10: Unemployment plus underemployment is now 16%. uh, And the public doesn't see benefits from this massive debt.
18: But Canada and France are okay, right? Yeah, that's what the Democrats need. Hey, we saved Canada and France. What? It appears the United States is suffering from a serious case of good news, bad news. Let's start with some good news. The Cash for Clunkers program has been a success.
9: It is good for the auto dealers. It is good for the auto manufacturers. It is good for the suppliers. It is good for workers. It is
15: good for the states.
4: It has succeeded well beyond our expectations and all expectations.
18: We thought it would suck. <laughs> we put the word clunkers right in the title of the program, for God's sake. <laughs> so that's good news. No downside, right? The number one car we're buying with the stimulus money, or with the cash for clunkers, is... A Pontiac America-mobile? The Corolla, the Toyota Corolla. The number one they're turning in? The Al-Qaeda Jihad ZX unconvertible? The Ford Explorer.
15: Really?
18: Yeah, turning in the Explorer and buying the little little Corolla. Damn it! (laughs) Why didn't they just call the program cash for your Ford Explorer. <laughs> Perhaps they did. Please, some good news. Citigroup today reported a
5: surprising second quarter profit of $4.3 billion. Bank of America reported a $3.2
13: billion profit for the second quarter. Goldman Sachs reported $3.44 billion.
18: J.P. Morgan Chase, $2.7 billion. <laughs> Woo-hoo, good news, the bailout worked. Those four <laughs> banks were bailed out by taxpayers. Good news for Wall Street is good news for Main Street. Unless they're making their profits in a way that would be bad news for consumers.
5: It's a record windfall, and most of it's coming from the accounts of Americans who can least afford it. It's a fee frenzy for U.S. banks. They're collecting more than $38 billion in overdraft fees this year.
18: making money despite the fact their customers are broke they're making money because their customers are broke <laughs> by the way good news bad news fun fact the fed has kept interest rates near zero to make it cheaper for banks to get their money whereas banks have raised their overdraft fees and credit card interest rates in fact in a typical overdraft incident the bank fee works out to an annual interest rate of 3520% <laughs> <laughs> So where's the good news in that, you ask? See, this guy? He's no longer the dickiest loan shark on your block. (laughs) Come on, brother, there's gotta be a little bit of chocolate sauce in this turd sandwich. Gimme good news!
7: If you have any paper money in your car, your pocket, your purse, chances are you're also carrying around some cocaine. (laughs) Scientists at the University of Dartmouth say nine of every 10 bills of any American kind has a trace amount of coke on it.
18: Well, that makes up for the other 10 percent, which is apparently feces and hepatitis. 90 percent of our money has value added. We're not on the gold standard, people. We're on the Colombian gold standard. What's up? Oh, oh. Uh, what does the euro have on their money? Oh, Nutella and ecstasy? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah,
15: yeah, 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 yeah.
18: I'll tell you what. The only bad news in that story would be if the city with the most cocaine on its money were somehow central to our country's power structure.
7: But we're told Washington D.C. has the most drug-tainted money. Wow.
18: Washington Washington, D.C. has the most cocaine on their money, huh? You'd think they'd get more done.
0: thanks for listening everybody so that was it big number 300 hopefully it was uh, at least 300 times better than the first episode we posted i i think that's probably a fair comparison given uh, what the show sounded like way back then i put just a tiny bit of thought into how to make this a special show of some sort and the, the one idea i came up with was i thought it'd be funny if for just this one episode i put in a new theme song ...and made it sound like, hey, new uh, new theme song, n- episode 300, t- you know, we've been using the same song for so long, it's time to switch it up. And uh, unfortunately for me, I just, I realized too late that that just wasn't actually funny. You know, I, like maybe it would be a tiny bit amusing for me, but mostly it would just be kind of irritating for all of you. And then by the time I realized that it wasn't really funny... I didn't have any time to come up with any uh, better idea. So here we go, it's just a regular show for you. Uh, 12 clips in 60 minutes though, that's pretty good. Uh, Action-packed episode, so hopefully that went over well. And the fact that it was chocked so full of comedy really was just an accident. Apparently the financial collapse is just a humorous topic that uh, the comedians have a field day with and so those just ended up being the clips I had available. So, I'm excited to say, I feel like, you know, because it's the 300th episode, it's a good time to reflect a little bit, and I think I'm happy to say that I really feel like the show has reached adulthood. You know, I really, I feel like I know what I'm doing, I feel like I'm in a good groove, Uh, we we hit a really good stride with the schedule, two episodes a week, every week, being really consistent about it, I'm really happy about that, and... The listeners seem to be really happy with the show. I mean, you know for yourself, but I haven't been getting complaints or even suggestions of of how to change the show, so I'm just feeling good about it, and I'm really glad I can say that things are going well, the show's going strong, and I plan on doing it for a long, long time. Hopefully, all of you guys will stick around and uh, take the ride with me. Now, of course, all of this is thanks to almost entirely to uh, the donations of the listeners uh, whether it be individual donations or membership donations people who sign up to, to do a, you know, a very small amount or a medium amount of, of money, but to do it on a recurring basis has made all of the difference in the world to my ability to stick to it with the show so obviously as I say so often, huge thanks to the members, I just couldn't be doing it without you And for everyone else, uh, any new listeners who don't know the system, this is actually a shareware podcast. And I just want to reiterate this point. A while back, I decided that this would no longer be a strictly free podcast. Of course, you can listen to the show for absolutely free, and we're never going to charge you just to hear the show. But what we are going to do is make you feel incredibly guilty unless you give, you know, just a little something back. Whether it be small donations, which would be totally fine, but what I'm talking about now... Is spreading the word about the show and so what we ask is that you spread the word to at least five friends of course this is really easy you take five minutes and write an email address it to five friends and send it off and you're done couldn't be easier now for today, of course, I want to thank a couple of specific members. Mike B has been a longtime supporter of the show, uh, you know, throwing in a, a few bucks here and there whenever he could. And then on August fifth, made it official and became a member. So huge thanks to uh, to Mike B for all his support over the uh, months and maybe even years, and uh, and also Sarah W just signed up, a brand new uh, member signed up September fifteenth, and she went above and beyond. She uh, decided to donate above the minimum. And uh, to do so on a yearly basis. So of course members sign up to support the show on an ongoing basis. They can do it either monthly or yearly. If you sign up yearly you get a little bit of a discount on the membership and they not only have the warm fuzzy feeling of helping support the show but also get access to the Best of the Left raw feed where you get all of the news and notes that end up in the show as well as some bonus tracks that don't make it in the final cut and When available, the clips come to you in their original video format, when they come from TV or online video or anything like that. So it's a great service that's uh, available only to the members as a thank you from me to them. You know, It takes a little bit of extra work for me to generate that raw feed, but it's more than worth it to give the members a little something back for their donations. Now my final note is just about the podcast awards. Just want to keep it on your radar coming up October 4th. The nomination process opens for this year's podcast awards. We're going to be going for the best produced show as well as the political podcast categories. So keep that on your calendar and be ready to go October 4th. And that's it for today. So stay connected with the show for reasonably regular updates on Twitter and Facebook or by signing up for our email newsletter. Support the show with reviews in iTunes, votes at Podcast Alley, and by filling out our listener survey, which is linked up on the website. The show's available on your smartphone by going to stitcher.com, and you can visit the show notes on the blog to find links to all the sources and the music used in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the 300th episode of the Best of Left Podcast, which is delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks to the support of our members from bestofleft.com.
15: Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to be. A dying man in a living room, the shadow bases the floor. Take you out.